If you got a Bible, let's open up to Jeremiah chapter 22. Um, we're going to read the first 10 verses of this text, uh, and I really have been looking forward to today's uh, worship and today's message. I believe that God has something pretty powerful to say to us and share with us, so I hope that we are uh, here with ears to hear, um, that we might have hearts um, to go and move in our world this week. So Jeremiah 22, let's go ahead and read the scripture, follow along with me. Chapter 22, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak this word. And say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, Execute judgment or justice and righteousness. Deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you indeed do this thing, then shall enter the gate of this house, riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by the servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. For thus says the Lord, the house of the king of Judah, you are Gilead to me, you, the head of Lebanon, yet I surely will make you a wilderness, cities which will not be inhabited. I will prepare destroyers against you, everyone with his weapon, they shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by this city and everyone will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord done this to this great city? Then they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. Weep not for the dead, nor bemoan him. Weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more, nor see his native country." Now, God brought me to this passage of Scripture for today's service, and, and more so than most uh, as I prepare for a week's sermon, um, this Scripture uh, really stuck on my mind and began to weigh heavy on my heart. Um, this text speaks to the inspiration behind the whole Bible, I think, maybe more than, than most passages. Um, it clearly influences many of the authors who would pick up the pen years later and write in the New Testament. But more than just influence, uh, the, the, it's clear that the writers spanning generations, thousands of years, it's clear they were drinking from the same water uh, because they were under the same inspiring force. This message and this, these commands that we find are all throughout the Scripture, maybe not as blunt, Um, as they are in this text, but they are all throughout the Bible. It's important to know this when you pick up the Bible and read any given selection, but honestly, it becomes readily apparent that the Bible is under a unified, inspiring spirit, uh, no matter which section or which page you read from end to end. So I think this text is awesome, and it's so convicting. Um, It doesn't even might help to make it convicting. It's so convicting. It's clarifying, and it serves as such a guiding light for really the whole body of Christ, for the people of God as a whole. And that's what I want to address us as, or I want to speak to us as, as God's people placed in the world to do His work. 
Uh, and that's what really got me thinking about this passage. It, it brought this holistic perspective to what we as the people of God ought to be all about. What ought to be our shared and united message. What ought to be recognized uh, about us from far away. By the things that we say, by the things that we do, by the places that we frequent. People ought to be able to see us and know who we are and what we're about. And if we are obedient to this text, it should be clear and obvious what the people of God are all about. Really, this text, um, it, it gives us a message, but it also puts a responsibility on our shoulders. Uh, it gives us a message that we ought to be spreading and a responsibility that we ought to be fulfilling, right? This is not just something we ought to go and repeat, but this gives us a responsibility that is on our shoulders that we ought to bear, that we ought to fulfill, that we can't get away from. And here's what's unique about this message and this responsibility. When it comes down to how the world may or may not listen, or how the world may or may not understand, and often as Christians, we're, we're often um, hesitant to talk about Jesus. We're often hesitant to do work in our culture and in our world because we fear, or we're just kind of you know used to the world kind of bucking up against us. And we often think, well, they won't understand, or they won't, they won't believe me, or they won't agree with me. But the commandment in this text, the, the order that is given to us in this text, it, it doesn't really, doesn't really all, uh, deal with what we believe. Of course, that's assumed. But it deals with how we behave. Uh, this commandment in this text doesn't care if the world disagrees with our theology. It forces the world to consider our shared humanity, our shared identity, it forces the world to look at us and say, well, if they think that is how we ought to behave, if they think that is how we ought to live, if they think those are the standards that we ought to be held up to or held, measured by, then I can't really ignore it. Yeah, I can disagree with the God that you worship. I can disagree with the God that you claim you believe and the things you say about Him. But this behavior that you're confronting me with, or this behavior that you're expecting out of me, or for me to share with others. This isn't really about what I believe. This is about how we behave. And, and, and listen, if our message is only always vertical, as if do this because God says and because of God, then people who don't believe in God, they just ignore us, right? And they'll say, well, I don't believe, so that doesn't apply to me, right? And whether it does or not, they just brush it off. And by no means is this message aside faith in God. It very much is rooted in our faith, and it's very much based on the mandate from God Himself. And it almost serves as a backdoor platform to reflect who our God is and what He's all about. Because it reflects His universal love for all people. And it calls on us. This is so big. This is, this is hard for some of us. And that, that's okay. But I want to get this out of the way. It calls on us to set aside personal politics and motives to be set apart for His service. Is that your goal in everyday life? That you might will be set apart for the service of God? Distinguished for His kingdom and His kingdom's use? Because this scripture reflects the love that God has for all people, and it reflects the commandment that God has given all of us. Jesus taught in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, 
That you love one another just as. So I'm defining what this love is all about. Just as I have loved you. Not as someone else has loved you because of course everyone loves differently, right? You are to love one another just as like the way I have loved you. Gentlemen, you must love one another. By this. Say those two words with me. By this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if, if, if. By this, I mean, there's a lot of ways that we could be recognized by the world, right? There's a lot of ways that God could have said, by this, you will be known as mine. By this, only this. We said, well, Justin, you've got to understand. I've got this bumper sticker, right? I've got a t-shirt. Got a necklace? I'm not saying these things are bad. I'm glad you should promote Jesus however, however many platforms you have, you should use that, right? You know, I have this Facebook thing, right? It's really, I make sure that I don't get anything too controversial on there, but I make sure people know. Listen, you know, Justin, I always, I always pray before my meal and they see me across. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do this stuff. You should. But Jesus says, listen, listen. The way you're going to let the world know that you're mine not those things. They won't pay attention to those things. I, listen, you're doing those things for me, and you should do those things for me, and, I, and you'll be blessed for it. But by this, all will know that you are mine. So our shared identity is more than just that we are all people. So speaking to what we're trying to get people to notice, this shared humanity, this shared identity, listen, we are all people are God's creation and created by God equals valued by God. So when Jesus said, you ought to always love one another, you ought to always love everybody, He is saying, hey, I created you all, I value you all, I love you all, so you ought also to love all. Pretty black and white, isn't it? Christianity in its Jewish lineage is set apart from any other faith and virtue system because Christianity inscribes value to all people. It mandates respect and dignity be given to everybody. And Jesus said, not me, Jesus said that Christianity is most defined when love is most visible. Now, contrary to what you might think, This doesn't lessen the importance of your everyday faith habits. This doesn't lessen the importance of church. It heightens it, rather. And of course, church attendance or participation isn't how we show the world we're Christians. Listen, not to hurt any of your feelings, but the world doesn't pay attention to what we do on Sunday mornings, right? They're either sleeping or they're doing something else that they think is more fun, right? I mean, what could be more fun than being here, right, with me? But you might would digress. But the the world doesn't pay attention to what we do on Sundays, Not that it isn't important, but we don't do this for them. We do this for Him, right? We do this because He is worthy of our praise. We do this because there's nothing else that rivals what He has to offer and give to us and share with us. As God's people, we see this as an opportunity to show Him that we're thankful, that we're interested, that we're invested to stay focused and devoted. In a world that attempts to drag us every direction, this is important. But come on, we're God's people. Church is a way to become a part of this united community that helps, that that wears this as its highest badge of honor, as our most important identity. And I think that's empowering, isn't it? Isn't that awesome? Isn't that an awesome privilege and label to wear? You are God's child. You are a person 
created by God in His image for His glory? To be able to sit and sing that we are His is awesome. But you know what? Singing that we are His compels us to show that we are His. And how can we show by loving one another? Our text goes deeper though. It's about more than just showing. It's about sharing. It's about advocating for. As in having the attention of the powers that be and being commanded to tell them, share with them what we're all about. And actually hold them accountable that they ought to do as we do. But as common sense as this next statement is, it needs to be said. If we aren't doing as we ought to do, then our witness won't work as it ought to. If we aren't doing as we ought to, then even though it can and will work, it won't work. If we aren't also practicing what we believe and preach. Now, we are the people of God. Living up to our name, living up to His name, that's our purpose. That's the only way we'll ever find joy and satisfaction in this world. And even more importantly, we as the people of God are placed in our world to make God known. And even if He's rejected, even if His ways are not accepted, we are called all the more to show why it's the only way and to model how true life and true purpose and true joy is only found in Him. And why is this so important for you and me to realize today? Why is this not an option for you as a person, as a child of God? Why is this such a mandate over us? The Bible teaches. The Bible distinguishes us as a moral compass for society, as the conscience for any given nation that we are placed in. You say, me? I'm just a, hey, you know, I'm just a person. The Bible says that you, as God's child, are part of God's church. You, as the people of God, I speak to y'all, as all of us, we, as the people of God, are called the moral compass. We are called the conscience of our nation. Is that true of the church in America? Is that true of our church and our community and you as you represent it in your communities and workplaces? Jesus calls back to this ethical standard, this calling that was embedded in the ancient Israelites that's so clearly seen and heard and felt in our text. Jesus would go on to preach to his disciples on opening day of his ministry. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus calls us in those few verses the moral compass, the conscience of our nations, of our world. He calls us salt, which is a preservative. Light, which is a guide. He says we are cities or communities of refuge that offer healing. Does that define us 
as society rots away in some ways. Are we preserving it? That's what salt was in the ancient world, right? It preserved meat from spoiling. Are we preserving our culture? Or are we just adding to its decay with our own tactics? I feel like this, is, this discourse that we have found ourselves in as a country, even if we disagree with the people that we, we claim are hurting society, we don't add anything wholesome back to it. We just help tear it apart. But what happens when you light, when you fight for such a lower kingdom and stand on shaky, uncertain ground, you play by the world's rules? Are we a light that's modeling a better way? Are we just religious people who just happen to be in line with everyone else? Or are we a light that shines to a better direction? Do we provide healing to all and anyone who comes into our communities? Does our speech and behavior offer acceptance and welcoming to people? Here in Jeremiah, God calls on His people to lift up their voices, to share a unified, focused message to those in power, to their leaders, and to their politicians, and to their friends and family. Calling us as citizens of God's kingdom placed within an earthly kingdom. This should be our message to welcome heaven's standards to earth. The first two verses are merely... Uh, are merely opening uh, the conversation between Jeremiah, his followers, to the king and the leaders of Judah. We see that the scripture says God tells Jeremiah to go to the house of the king of Judah, to go to where the, the, the leaders are, to go to where the, the people that think they have all the control and all the influence. And he commands Jeremiah to echo the word from the Lord to them. And verse 3 is really the, bulk, is really the heart of this message. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment or justice, righteousness. Deliver, underline this, this, this uh, phrase, deliver the plunder out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Now, I'm asking you to set aside your personal politics. I'm asking you to consider God's policies and allow Him to influence and even change the way you see the world. If we're to be properly effective, that's a necessity, right? This change is concerned with how God's children or with how God's people... Let's go to the next slide. How God's children are advocating the best for His creation. For His creation, all the people that He is creator of. Because clearly so many within His creation are not all experiencing His best, but, are, but they are suffering the worst. This poses the question, how can we advocate for those who are being wronged? How can we who know the goodness of God share that goodness and rally around those who have not and are not experiencing it, maybe at their own Doing, or maybe because they just were caught up in something they didn't even know would take them that way. This verse refers to the least among us. Those who are unable to defend or have unsuccessfully defended themselves from the enemy. Jesus taught that the heartbeat of the kingdom of God was a care for, a concern for, compassion for the least of any given society. 
He didn't qualify the least as these kind of people who did this certain thing but not this thing. He just referred to the least and this Scripture refers to the least of these. Those who are most clearly struggling make clear the struggle that we all face internally. And those who understand the grace of God, how it catches in our falling souls and sustains our struggling flesh, they are the children of God and, how, and, and they have a heart for knowing how important it is to extend the kindness that God has shown them. Does that describe you? Are you someone that advocates for the weakest for the least of these? Are you someone that looks for opportunities to reach down and help those that maybe they wanted to be in the mess they're in? Maybe they didn't realize what they were getting themselves into. We don't know, and the Bible doesn't give us the option to qualify or disqualify anybody. The Scripture says they're valuable. What are you going to do about it? Now, thankfully, Jesus helps us out to understand all this even more. Jesus spoke of the end of days. And Jesus spoke of how at the end, our obedience to this verse is so important. And it will be a matter of discussion at the end. If you don't believe me, Matthew 25, Jesus said this. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And of course they said, the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Jesus, you've never been in any of these categories. And he says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers or sisters, you did it also to me. Do you hear what Jesus is saying there? Do you see why this verse, why this passage is so important to us in Jeremiah? Jesus makes it crystal clear. The people of God who are headed towards the kingdom of God never cease to show and share the love of God to those who are far away or perhaps the most far away from God. So this is one of those you can't run from it kind of questions. One of those you can't run from it kind of texts. How faithful are we at doing this? Don't we often make so many excuses as why we don't give? What, uh, what we are also ready to take? Don't we often ask for ourselves but act as if others' cries are illegitimate or unmerited? Unsubstantiated? Jesus described people who were hungry and thirsty, strangers away from their own people, sick and afflicted. He talked about people who were destitute of all the world's goods. Desolate from where they need and wanted to be. Devastated from what has happened to them in this life. The oppressor comes in many forms. Sometimes the world leaves us destitute, desolate, devastated. The cards are stacked against us. We may, uh, it may, be, uh, we may be in monetary or adverse situations compared to what would be ideal. We really don't know what... We really don't know what others may be going through, but we do know this. Sin is the greatest and ultimate oppressor. 
And sometimes it uses human elements, and sometimes it doesn't have to. It doesn't need to. Sin aims to trip all of us up, press its boot down on our necks, and choke us out. And that's graphic, I know. And maybe it needs to be to understand how afflicted we all have been and how pummeled we all are by sin. We as God's people ought to know in our basic faith how fortunate we are to have been given grace and delivered from sin. We ought to always be seeking ways to promote our salvation and to share it. And God's message to those in power and God's command to us is how can we rescue the least among us from the oppressor? Notice some of the examples of oppressed and weak and least in verse number 3. The fatherless, the stranger, the widow, the innocent. You could almost describe these in a more broad way. Those who are out of place, out of luck, and out of time. I'm not underscoring the categories given to us in the text. I'm just trying to get us to see ourselves in these categories if, we have ever, if we've never walked those specifically. As God's people, we ought to always be advocating for and attending to the calls of those in need because they speak to the need that we all have, and I think their visibility in some ways is our accountability. In today's world, those in need come in many different fashions, from babies to students, immigrants to orphans, the lonely to the lost. Vulnerable mothers-to-be, struggling single parents, neglected children of divorce or broken homes. Those struggling with unseen illnesses, distraught by mental health issues that aren't often considered legitimate. People who know way more rejection than they know acceptance. Those who expect disappointment more than they do success. How can we conquer these oppressors? How can we advocate for so many that we may not have any true means of engaging? We often think, well, that person ought to not even been in that place to begin with. They would agree, right? They would love to not have been in that place, but that's not how the cards went. But does that mean they're hopeless? Does it mean we should just walk away and act as if they don't deserve another chance? Sometimes we observe people and think, wow, they just make bad choices. But what if some of those choices were made for them? And haven't you made some bad choices too? There are many people who feel like lot time has run out on them, and maybe it has. But shouldn't we who have everlasting life extend our hope to them as well? All of this begins with sensitivity. If we're ever going to be obedient to verse number 3, we have got to be sensitive to those that are going through things that we don't know about and we may never know about. We have to acknowledge that we did not earn our way to good fortune, but by grace alone have we obtained our place. If we find ourselves with any means of security or immunity, with any added cause to rejoice, we ought to be more compelled than ever to reach down and reach out. That's what the Scriptures command us to do. One scripture that we often neglect. Moses commanded the children of Israel, You shall not mistreat a stranger, nor oppress them. For you know very well what it's like to be a stranger in a land that was not your home. So we must remember those that may be in situations that we aren't necessarily familiar with. But to show them the grace of God, we must first be sincere. We must first be sensitive to their needs. Insensitivity always brings about sincerity. Sincerity doesn't walk away and pray for, but it remains present with. Sincerity moves towards the oppressed, doesn't just shout at it. 
Sincerity may not agree, but it doesn't abandon. Sincerity balances on a tightrope that may be different, but it's not arrogant. It's compassionate. Sincerity isn't concerned with taking political sides or pushing one's personal agenda. Sincerity says, hey, I see someone in need. I see someone that needs relief, someone in need of advocacy. And whether we come out on the other side agreeing or not, that's not my concern. My concern is showing the love of God and leaving an impression that can make a difference. If you only hear this, I hope you can keep it with you. Sincerity is all about making a difference, not simply making a point. We're good at making points. We're good at saying, I'm right, you're wrong, hey, I'm sorry. But we need to be people that are difference makers. God forbid we be good for point making, but lousy at making a difference. Here's why there's tension in this for so many of us. We've been brainwashed and wired by our cultures and societies, and it's hard for us to hear this and not bring our own worldly politics and ideals into it, isn't it? What if we began from this place and interpreted our world through it? We may find that we don't have as defined a place within the world's parameters as we once thought. And maybe that's okay. Maybe that's what God intends. Maybe that's how we stand out and shine the brightest. Not as mere nonconformists or contrarians, but as Christians. Ultimately, if we're going to make a difference in somebody's life, it's going to cost us. It may cost us our affiliation with some group. It may cost us someone's approval. It may cost us time and effort, but it's going to demand a sacrifice. It may be for the gain of the oppressed, and that's what should be the desire of all of God's people. Kingdom over party. Soul over social pressure. Compassion over indifference. Difference making over point making. And that's why rescuing and bringing relief is going to cost us in some ways. Romans chapter 12 tells us famously, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And thankfully, Paul goes on to detail what it means to be a sacrificing spiritual follower of Jesus. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Christians, our motivation is never our own prosperity. It's never our own comfort. It's never our own agenda. It should be. It should be how can we do the most good for others for the most glory to God. To chase after any other goal will leave us desolate in our hearts and in our future. Verse number 4 says, If we indeed do this thing, then there will be a, a future worth living for. The kingdom will be established. This speaks of the throne of David, the kingdom of God. For the kingdom to live up to its name, obedience is a must. The kingdom of God should be a stronghold, a refuge for all people to dwell in. We are called priests in God's kingdom. And much like ancient Israel, our place is not just in the building worshiping, but it's in the fields working. And the Old Testament priests were mediators between God and the rest of the people. We are called to fulfill this role. Hold those in power accountable. Hold up those who are weak. In ancient Israel, the priests lived in their own city, serving as local lamps for the temple light. Six of those priestly cities had a higher purpose. They were called cities of refuge, where those that were most broken could find rest and even amnesty. 
as long as the priest of that city was alive. And every 50 years, a year of jubilee was celebrated that granted a blank slate and a new beginning to everybody. Christians, we lift up a high priest who has defeated death, so we ought to be singing and sharing of a new beginning found in Jesus every single day. This is what Jesus was calling back to when He said, we are a city set on a hill with a light shining and welcoming all people. Our personal lives, our professional lives should exude His spiritual light. The way we conduct ourselves in every aspect of life ought to speak clear and powerful this message. Because God makes a dreadful promise to those who ignore this command. Hear it once more, verse 5. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself that this house shall become a desolation. He goes on to make some analogy that they would have understood more than us, but he says that many nations will pass by this great city or this once great city and they will marvel at what it used to be and what it now is. Hmm. Similar to Jesus' words to that man who lived for himself and ignored his calling. Similar to those on the other side of the coin on that day of judgment that Jesus talks about. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. Oh, but Jesus, we never saw you hungry or thirsty or in prison or naked or whatever. We never saw you in need. Hey, hey. But inasmuch as you didn't do to the least, you did not do to me. Because they have forsaken the Lord. Forsaken the covenant that they made with God. You know, I think a lot of times our relationship with church and faith is this push-pull relationship. Many leave the church or fail to ever find a place in it because we aren't getting anything out of it, we say. On the flip side, churches and pastors often sit on soapboxes and say things like this, we ought to do more. You ought to do better without ever giving a concrete, clear road as to what you should do or how you should do it. Often the entire religious experience is just about feeling bad but never getting right. Well, I felt bad last Sunday. I guess that's what I'm supposed to feel on Sundays, right? But you never actually find a way to go to make things better. We go to church just to be excused for not being right. It's almost like as we, we are vicariously righteous. Is that the goal of Christianity? That Jesus was righteous for us and that we don't have to be? I don't think that, that's, that's it, do you? I mean, yes, Jesus is righteous for us, but He's also righteous through us. That He is our, our, our atonement to God, but as disciples of him, His, we become righteous like Him. This is not a matter of salvation. Salvation is, is through imputed righteousness. God gives us a righteous standard because of what Jesus did, but God makes us righteous as a byproduct of our salvation. You can think of it this way. Faith in Christ makes us righteous before God, but Christ makes us righteous before others. It's not that complicated, is it? It's logical. It's sensible. What sin makes us unable to do, Christ enables us to do and more. And the Bible has a lot to say about our, what our righteousness before others should look like. We've read it in Jeremiah. That's all over the Old Testament. And the New Testament provides a solution in Christ. There's a letter in the New Testament written by James. 
James, the little brother of Jesus, of course, born naturally, but James was super passionate about the Old Testament ethic and moral standard. He championed bringing this pattern of justice and righteousness to the first century world. He realized that Jesus actually put legs on these promises and made possible the promises of old. James writes, wrote to us as believers, as recipients of God's amazing grace. And he says to us, as priests in God's kingdom, as the people of God, he holds us accountable. I'll close by showing you a few of these verses. Be doers of the word. Not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And he's talking in, our, in terms of our behavior toward one another, towards other people. He says... For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and says, there's a problem there, and I'm not going to do anything about it. For he, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Most of our religious experiences are like that. We stare at the Scriptures, we come to church, we know what we ought to do or how we ought to do differently, but we just never make the decision to be different. But the one who looks into the law, perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no here, one who, he who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James is telling us that application makes all the difference. Unapplied truth is like unapplied pain. It doesn't do anybody any good. The value is in the application. Merely reading the Bible or hearing a sermon is one thing, but real life change happens in the doing And here's the thing. If you know what you should do, it's not a time to pray about it. It's time to do something about it. If a man with an unshaven face comes forward and asks for prayer that that he might shave his face, we would laugh, right? You know what to do. It's so much more important that when we consider our placement as the body of Christ in the world, this is especially pressing in light of our interactions with others, which James talks in depth about, with Jeremiah confronts us with. It's so easy to ignore the needs of others. It's easy to lecture people how to, uh, rather, rather than live alongside them. Often we are entrenched in the things of God. And we who worship and read and study and know, we can become so enlightened and so arrogant we lose our effectiveness in the world. James' advice isn't about being right at the other. It's that we would be right with the other and thus with God. I've said this before. God doesn't want us to be right at one another. He wants us right with one another. And it's so easy It's so tempting to become distracted from the world by faith, but faith actually directs us into the world. Elevating someone's condition is always an opportunity to elevate the gospel of Jesus. Whether it's reconciling to someone you know, reaching out to someone you don't know, the gospel compels us to love, and love compels us to share the gospel. James closes it out like this. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religious is worthless. And here's what he's meaning by that. If we allow our tongue to talk our hearts out of serving, if we allow our minds to convince us, oh, that's not necessary. Oh, that's not important. You know, sermons like this, Justin, really aren't as fun to sit through as sermons where we talk about how, uh, how, how, God, how much God loves us and how good things are for us. And I'm not saying those aren't important as well. But our tongues talk our hearts out of receiving and talk our hearts out of serving. 
God forbid the church become as unproductive as our politicians. God forbid the church become as unproductive as so many others in the world. And God forbid our tongues talk us out of serving with our hearts. James says this, Religion that is pure, undefiled before God the Father is to visit orphans, widows, in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained, unpolluted, to keep oneself from being muddled by the world. Consider those who have been abandoned. Remember those who have been who are weak. Remember, we've been adopted. God has reconciled us to Himself. We have no excuse not to seek restoration with one another. Rally behind one another. Provide care for one another. And I tell you this, church, with all my love, may we not isolate ourselves, may we not isolate faith to our corner, but may we activate our faith in their midst. I'd like for us all to pray. And be open to God leading us in a direction to serve somebody, to help somebody, to do good for somebody, to reflect God's love to somebody this week. This is more than just praying for them. It's stepping out of our comfort zones and moving towards them. How is God leading you to share, to love, to care? How is He leading you to advocate, to preserve, to confront, to shine, to extend healing? Pray for God to open a door in your community. Pray for God to open a door in your work environment. Pray for God to use your platform to reflect His love to somebody that needs it. And most of us don't even need to pray about it. We know we have many opportunities in front of us every single day. We know there are weak and vulnerable and struggling people on our paths. We know that there are people who cannot defend themselves and that we can rally in the defense of. We are often surrounded by, even contribute to hateful, crass, heartless rhetoric towards anybody besides ourselves that's going through something rough. We often turn a blind eye to those who are being oppressed because it doesn't affect us. But what if we pray for God to lead us? What if we pray for God to lead them to us? We'll become less self-absorbed. We'll become sinless. We will give more. We won't worry if we've given too much. We'll wonder if we've given enough. Because after all, we are the people of God. We did not walk into this role on our own. Jesus came into the trench and found us and raised us up and adopted us. He has given us so much. Shouldn't we share Him with so many? I think so. I know so. And you do too.